Hey, this is Brooklyn Vegan Editor Andrew Sacker, and I'm stoked to welcome you to the very first episode of the new Brooklyn Vegan Podcast. We're going to be talking about all the music we love across punk and metal and rap and indie rock and folk and so much more. We're going to have interviews with artists, deep dives into specific genres and scenes and trends, and whatever else happens as we go down this podcasting journey. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, where we're constantly posting music news like new songs, tour announcements, album reviews, live show coverage and photos, and so much more. We've got a lot of cool stuff on the horizon, but first, this episode is with Barry Johnson, frontman of Joyce Manor, whose great new record, 40 Ounces to Fresno, comes out on Epitaph Records this week. Barry and I talk a lot about the new record, and he also reflects on the 10th anniversaries of Joyce Manor's first two albums. He talks about how getting into music changes as you get older. He talks about his relationship with Ska, and so much more. It was a great chat, and here it is. So before we get into the new album, uh, you recently celebrated the 10th anniversary of your debut with some shows. Uh, and since then, your second album, Turn 10 2, uh, 10 years feels like such a major milestone, especially when you think about how many of your former peers have broken up over the years. Uh, what kind of thoughts have you had reflecting on like 10 years of the album that started it all and or just about the way that album's impact has grown over time? I guess 10 years is uh, it's when you're allowed to start kind of um, getting nostalgic about things or celebrating things. You know what I mean? It feels like a milestone. And I guess the thing that it kind of made me realize or, th or think about is how different the crop of bands that we were kind of a part of or that were kind of associated with, how it was kind of a special time. And it didn't feel like it at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't even necessarily like being compared to those bands at the time. I, f I felt like we were kind of something different mm -hmm. or coming from, a coming from a different place. So I guess the bands I'm talking about would be like, Tiger's Jaw, Title Fight, um, even like um, the Menzingers, Touche Amore. Like um, at the time, I was just like, we don't fucking sound like those bands. Like I, I my uh, my view of what we what we were doing was, um, I don't know. I was so in it, you know what I mean. I was so involved that every like subtle detail that makes us different seemed huge to me. But now looking back, like looking at kind of. Um, the current crop of younger bands, like it feels very different. Like the world is very different. Technology is very different. The way people consume music is completely different. And the reference points for like what those kids are influenced by are pretty fucking different. So I see a lot more similarities between us and title fight and tiger's jaw and kind of where we were coming from and what we were influenced by. And, you know, just the, cultural touchstones that we were drawing from um i just kind of I, I get it more now you know with a little bit of distance and um it feels cool to be kind of from that from this kind of um moment in like uh underground music or, or pop punk or emo or, or whatever you want to call it you know it's like uh yeah it, it, it you don't know what you got till it's gone you know it really was like we were i think a cool crop of bands and it, it was a cool moment and um that's how I feel looking back on it where I'm like, damn, we were all kind of from the same exact time and came out of the same exact scene and all kind of um, had the same exact booking agent. We all were all booked by this guy Merrick 
and um and uh you know we are all now for the most part still doing it and um we're like these you know established bands now but we were scrappy kids you know that uh yeah it's just it, it makes me feel more um, a little more warm and fuzzy where at the time i didn't at the time i was kind of um a pretentious asshole i thought we were kind of um better better than uh better than we i just thought, not better like i just thought we were doing something different i couldn't see the similarities and it was just frustrating i at the time i felt to get compared to any of those bands but now now i find it flattering and, and i can see um what a special time it was mm-hmm. i also just feel like with what you and all those bands were kind of going through is like you all really came from like really diy type underground like i mean um like when you played new york when that album was actually new, you played like Party Expo. Yeah. And then like the 10th anniversary is at Central Park. Like I think Joyce Manor might be the first band of all time to like play an album at Party Expo when it's new and celebrate its anniversary at Central Park. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. <laughs> I don't think that Simon and Garfunkel played Party Expo. Right. could be wrong, right. but they might've hit Party Expo one time. But um, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's what I mean where it's amazing. It's like, wow. And you know, we also, I mean, Tiger's Drive was supposed to play that show. And um, yeah, I just, I just feel a lot more like less up my own ass and less like, uh, you know, less delusional, delusional, delusional about what we, I don't know, man, we were like pop punk band with blast beats that was like kind of indie rock tinged. And I just kind of didn't, um, but now, but now I kind of I listen to you know Title Fight or or early Tiger's Jaw stuff and I'm like these are weird bands too that are also kind of channeling indie rock and hardcore and um, you know emo or like uh, yeah post hardcore I don't know there's like a lot there's a lot going on because we all you know I guess came from file sharing age but not streaming it wasn't a streaming era it was more like um, I guess it had more, it would be more like tape trading or like it was still more curated and um, yeah, it's just very specific time and, and there was a very specific taste. And uh, yeah, I just think, yeah, I think it's really cool that we're all still doing it and all still um, crushing it. <laughs> yeah. And then like, you know, you were talking before about, you know, like, I mean, you and those bands, I think you probably had some shared influences and stuff and now, I mean, like, you're an influential band. Like, you talk about the new crop of bands. Like, bands pop up all the time who are referencing Joyce Manor. Yeah. Like, when you started to see that, was that, like, a little surreal at all for you? Yeah, well, you know, anytime you hear a band that's influenced by you, it's like um, it's like someone doing an impression of you, you know? It's like, it's it, even if it's meant to be flattering, it's like, I don't fucking sound like that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> um, and again... Again, I, I think uh, when you're in it, you know, it's one thing, but then probably I'll listen back to those bands in a couple of years and I'll be like, ah, this, yeah, this is cool. Like, um, I, I've like warmed to a, a band like Prince Daddy and the Hyena, but like when I first heard it, like I could hear Joyce Manor in it and it was, it feels weird. It felt kind of like, ugh. but then uh, I think I was listening to something on Spotify, maybe like Tiger's Jar or something. And when the album finished, it started just going rogue and it, it played a Prince Daddy song and I was like, I'm feeling this is, this is cool. I, like, I get it. I get it. You know, it's less defensive about it. And so um, it's just the context in which you hear it and how in it you are, you know, and um, yeah, I'm just trying to stay like open and, um, but it's, it's weird to, to hear a band and you can tell that they listen to your band, you know, it's, it's a little too uh, close to home or something. And I try, I try not to 
listen to that in my free time. But like I said, it, Spotify randomly just threw a Prince Daddy song at me and, and I was, you know, off guard and I was like feeling it. I was like, oh yeah, I kind of see why this is, this is the hit. And like this, this is a cool song. And, and I was flattered, but yeah, you know, totally. it's, a weird, it's a little weird. I mean, I feel like, you know, you even get that as a fan a bit. Like when, once you start hearing bands that you're like, oh, these are influenced by the bands that like I grew up with. It's like a different type of thing, right? Than when you're going backwards and you're like, oh, I'm getting into like minor threat because the bands I like tell, told me to, you know, and then it's totally. like you're the opposite. And it's like, wait a minute, I know this already. Yeah, it, it, it can't help but sound a little derivative to you. Mm-hmm. Even though, but I think it's just because of how how close you are to it, and there's also weird feelings of kind of being aged out and feeling old. So there's a lot there's a lot going on there, you know. And and you got to really um, separate what you're taking personally and what is just um, and try to be open and try to embrace it and try to like uh, enjoy what's what's good there and and try to get see what the kids are connecting to. You know, it's like what are what are the kids hearing? that my like ancient jaded ears aren't hearing, you know, cause at a certain point, everything's not like the guy um, is doing auxiliary stuff in our band is this, this dude, Neil, and he, he's a little younger than us. And sometimes he'll show me bands and I'm so quick to just be like, dude, this is like the 18th version of this band I've heard over the last 20 years. You know what I mean? Like every couple of years, this kind of thing pops up and, and I'm like, you know, he's not, he's not like a, a total kid or anything, but he's just more open and um, excited about stuff than I am where I'm so quick to um, just be like, heard this before. Like, yeah, okay. I get it. Another post-punk band. Like I've heard that, you know what I mean? Like this shit was derivative 20 years ago. So, right. Um, you know, but totally try, trying to stay, stay open and, and see what's, and just not become totally jaded and insufferable. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes work as you age, like yeah, but but it's rewarding, I think, when you when you do it. Yeah, because sometimes you like like you know you discredit stuff that actually has oh something going on, and once you kind of can get past your initial knee jerk reaction to just um, uh, dismiss everything as being like, you know, I totally get what this band is doing. I totally get their influences. This is nothing exciting. But, you know, you spend some time and it starts to reveal itself. Of like, oh no, there's, there's a, there's a songwriter here, and there's, there's a, just something a little. A, there's a spark. There's something that people are latching onto and hearing. It's not just so. Yeah, just got to be careful of that knee jerk reaction to dismiss stuff outright. Totally. Or I have to be careful of it. Right. Not Other people can do whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> I have right. to be careful of it. Yeah. Right. Well. Speaking of music that's been dismissed, um, so your so your Choice second album, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So your second album also just turned ten, and I mean that one's always been a little divisive amongst fans, and it's largely songs that you rarely play live. Yeah. Um, but there's also a faction of fans who really ride for that album. I, yeah. I really like that album. I'm like a big fan of that one. So I was wondering at this point, like ten years down the line, what's your like current relationship to those songs? I love that one. Yeah, I think that one's great. I think um, I think it's kind of like if you were telling someone a story about a time you had a nervous breakdown and and you're like laughing about it now. You're like, yeah, dude, I was like acting crazy and I was saying insane shit and I was, you know, uh, I had starting to get tunnel vision and stuff. Like you can kind of see the humor in it now, but it was a painful time. I was really struggling uh, to follow up the first record that people had really loved and 
and I didn't, you know, it was the most self-conscious my songwriting has ever felt. Like, uh, I was just really, really aware that people were going to be listening to it and and like, it's too much like the first record. It's, it's too different than the first record. And I also, you know, I didn't really set out to be in a pop punk band, you know, like I, I like, I love pop punk. Like I love it. I listen to pop punk all the time, but I didn't really want to be like pigeonholed. And this was still the era of like, um, warp tour was still a big thing. You know, there was still that kind of like, um, newfound glory esque shit going. And like, you know, a lot of people who are into that stuff really responded to our band. And I think, you know, I was really concerned with being cool and being like accepted by the cool kids. And I really wanted to prove that we're like, not just a pop punk band. So I was really leaning into the, um, more esoteric and, and weird shit and trying to like rep like wire or like young marble giants or like, um, just be like, I have a cool record collection. I swear to God, you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 you know, I, I was maybe not marrying those things seamlessly, which I think we did later on, um, on never hung over again, like never hung mm -hmm. over again. Sounds like someone who has like, some slumberland records stuff owns enema the state is like you know like they're like is into sebado like you can hear kind of all these things happening but in one song like the uh the soup kind of became its own thing whereas on um the, that second record is super schizophrenic like it's like one minute it's doing this the next minute it's doing that and that's kind of cool and listening to it now i'm just like wow i was bold like that transition is is pretty cool and it works weirdly but um but it was not fun to make and really really self-conscious and kind of trying to sabotage my career so no one else like i barely had a fucking career then and one record out you know what i mean but i was like i it was so i was so up my own ass and i was so self-important and so like you know um, concerned with what other people thought of me, you know? And um, so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to drive my career into the ground so no one else can, you know, so no one else can take it from me. I was so anxious and so nervous and so much concerned with, am I going to blow it? This is my one chance and I'm going to fucking blow it. But it's like, if I fucking just smash it into the ground, then no one else can, you know? I just wasn't well. It wasn't a happy time, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I needed I needed therapy, and I eventually got it. So, yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, and I mean, I so I have I have definitely like referred to that album on Twitter as like your Pinkerton, sure. Like you know, and um, I feel like, uh, and then you know, you did like like you said you tried to sabotage in a way, but then never hung over again was almost like this other like classic. Like it kind of, like, that was almost like really like the breakthrough kind of, right? I feel like that I was think when, so. yeah. Like, yeah, I feel I like the first one is the one for so many people, but like sure. Never Hung Over Again really took you guys to like mid-sized clubs and like Epitaph mm -hmm. Records, Pitchfork, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, we went from having like zero fans anywhere to like having a, you know, small fan base but we could play in new york and there'd be people there you know even the party mm -hmm. the, the, i don't know how many people were at the it's called party expo that was called that was that place you, yeah on the first record what, 40 yeah. people there 40 people there <laughs> but that was like that was such a fucking 
slam dunked us. Like, dude, we went to New York. There were fucking 40 people there, you know, because at that point, like, you know, there was only 40 people in L.A., you know, so it was it was just uh, it was cool. And um, that was just such a huge that's how low the bar was or how and like careerist or ambitious we were. To where, like that was, you know, like we well, we, we made it. We did it. We played in New York and there was fucking people there. Amazing. So. Um, I guess, yeah, we, I, I, I kind of like to think more in terms of like um, artistic success and like success as far as like songwriting wise. And um, I think Never Hung Over Again is the first time we made something that uh, it doesn't really sound like anything else. Like it's, it's actually unique and it's actually um, spent like I, I can't if you can tell me another song that sounds like The Jerk, like I'd love to hear it. I'd be like, yeah, let's hear it. But it's like it's just a really cool um, amalgamation of a few different things that is becomes its its own unique thing. And I think it has to do with a lot of it has to do with Chase's guitar playing. I think Chase is a really, really unique guitar player and writes um, really amazing parts. And um, and it's kind of the way my um, like the vocal melodies weave inside of Chase's stuff is, you know, it's uh just kind of special, you know, and uh, and I think that that really becomes apparent on, like we tried to do a bit of that on of all things, but we didn't really start having success with it until Never Hung Over Again. For sure, I mean, I even think the debut doesn't really sound like any other band. I mean, I think it's like everything you were saying. It's all those sort of similar but also disparate influences that you guys sort of just channel in like a supernatural way. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's pop punk with blast beats, which is. I mean, they're they're fake blast beats, but they're fucking blast beats. Like it's a, uh, it's not really been done, you know. So or that or that I'm aware of. I mean, Descendants kind of get you know a little bit like that, but but not in the same way. And um, I can I can really hear the influences on the first record, like pretty clearly. Like there's there's a song that sounds quite a bit like Shinobu. Beach Community is pretty much just Weezer. But it's a, it's a little more like pissed off sounding, even even more pissed off I think than Pinkerton. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. it's a little more aggro, and you know, leather jacket, same kind of thing. That that um, beginning riff is is super converge. It's um, what's that record? Um, you fail me, like the first track, and like the the stops and starts are pretty similar to the intro of you fail me so i know where i'm picking from but other people don't so they hear it and they're like wow this is a really fresh take on a um genre that's been done to death you know and so but but i can hear where i'm pulling from whereas uh i never hung over again i'm like yeah, i don't know what the fuck that is that's it, yeah it, it just feels special and kind of unique to me right i mean i guess it's like the more you do it the more you just like at some point you just develop your voice and it's like, you forget like who the influences are and it just becomes like part of you as a songwriter. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, and I, I really, I really, really think I, I couldn't have reached that level alone. I really think it's when I started working with Chase that we started bringing stuff out of each other that was um, bigger than the sum of its parts. And, and really that's when we started writing stuff. That's pretty, um, it's just, it's special. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of it and really, uh, grateful to be a, a part of a songwriting partnership that's um done stuff that I, I still listen to it and i'm like how the fuck did we do that like that is just so cool yeah yeah 
Well, moving on to the new stuff. Uh, so the bio for the new album says you originally planned to take a small break from music after Million Dollars to Kill Me, but then this new album was born. Uh, what changed? Well, I started to feel like during the touring cycle and even the writing and recording of Million Dollars to Kill Me, we were just kind of keeping the wheels spinning, you know, like I felt a, like a, I kind of wanted to slow down and assess and take stock of my life because it's just been on the road for like 10 years straight. You don't really have a home life and you don't really have um, relationships at home or healthy ones anyway. And um, just kind of really wanted to take stock of things and uh, settle into a comfortable and healthy routine at home. And um, we kind of just kept it going for a million dollars to kill me because things were going well. and. Um, we got offered a, some cool tours that were like, yeah, let's do them. Yeah, okay, let's do this. So, um, yeah, we're kind of running. I felt like I was running on empty a little bit. And uh, just after we finished the touring, wrapped up the touring for that record, you know, it was like, just told the guys, I was like, hey, I, I kind of would like to take a nice little chunk of time off. And uh, me and a couple friends opened a bar called the Sardine in San Pedro, and I was like, I just want to bartend there to make some money and just kind of get into a routine at home. And I think it would be good for my songwriting as far as just like falling into a healthy routine and you know not just trying to write between tours. And so, uh, yeah, I, I decided I'd like to do that. And then fucking pandemic happened, and then. Uh, I didn't do anything for a few months. Like for a few months, I was like, fucking okay. And I just played video games and uh, went for walks, drank beer, smoked weed, listened to records. Like it, it was, you know, just all the shit I like to do. So it was, it was awesome. And that got old after a little while. And so I was like, well, what can I do? And I started kind of going through, you know, actually, I started going through old stuff too, because we put out that collection record. So that kind of got me digging through like old old songs and st unreleased stuff, and uh, I realized I had a handful of things that I was like, oh, I could, I think I could do something with this. Or if I worked on that a little more, I think I think there's something there. So, you know, I had Secret Sisters, which we initially talked about putting on the collection record, but ultimately decided um, it didn't. It, it fell out of place. Um, everything on that's from before the first record, and Secret Sisters is from the Never Hung Over Again sessions. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, maybe we put this on the new record. And I think it'd be cool to kind of do a few things that sounded kind of like that. Like it, Secret Sisters kind of slams in that like emo way. Like it just fucking slams, you know? It has like those pauses and then it slams. And I was like, you know, there wasn't a ton of that on Million Dollars to Kill Me. There's a little bit of it on Cody, but I was like, yeah, we don't have a ton of stuff that kind of slams. So, you know, we did Gotta Let It Go which has like that kind of emo groove and that slam kind of thing. I was like, yeah, it'd be cool to do a record like that. We've never really done a record that's focused on that. And of course, like I, I just wrote what I was going to write. You know what I mean? Like it's, you can, mm. you can intend to do whatever you want, but once you're, you know, trying to get inspired and get creative, like what's going to happen is it's going to happen. And so, yeah, there ended up only being a few moments on the record like that. Um, the cover that opens the record being one of them, that one kind of has like a, you know, a Weezer-y kind of heavy emo kind of groove. And uh, yeah, but that, that was the intention to kind of be like, what if we made a record that kind of all sounded like Secret Sisters? But 
it didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But that was the initial intention, yeah. Right. Uh, so let's talk about that cover a bit. So it's, it's an OMD song. Um, it was originally on the split with Blake from Jawbreaker uh, for that comic book series. What's the furthest place from here? Yeah, no um, big deal. Right, right. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, I mean, it's your first cover on an album since Video Killed the Radio Star. On, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, also it opens the album, which I feel like is kind of a unique placement for a cover. Um, weird. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Blondie did it, so you know, like it's it's uh, it's been done. But um, I feel was that like hanging on the telephone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, but they also, I feel like, I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, get into what Blondie did, but you know, I feel like they almost like stole that song and made it. Their yeah, own. <laughs> like, well, yeah, because uh, the that Nerves version was like, I think it did get a proper release, but it was hardly known at all. It's kind of right. become more known, yeah, in in more yeah. recent years. Yeah. So this is definitely a little different than that yeah, but um totally. but yeah so why the decision to include a cover on an album again and why this song um well we just recorded it for that split really liked how it turned out and i was like you know this kind of fits with the secret sisters vibe of just you know that like big crunchy guitars and you know uh so i was like yeah let's let's put it on the record and then i initially had it sequenced last and i just trying to figure out the sequence tried a million different versions I had a third for a little while and it just didn't feel right. It felt like it kind of disrupted the flow. So I was like, well, it either has to go first or last. And it's pretty weird to put it first. So I was kind of adverse, uh, adverse to that initially, obviously. But the more I listened to it, I was like, it's kind of a fucking kick ass for a song. And I like doing weird shit. It was weird to put uh, Video Killed the Radio Star, a fucking like skate punk version of that in the middle of your record. Uh, in the middle of your fucking, after like a, you know, lo-fi acoustic like you know iron and wine or some shit sounding song that's fucking weird it's bizarre so i was like yeah you know we've never been afraid to get bizarre and it's kind of an old-timey thing to do like a lot of like 60s records open with a cover you know and uh, right right it's just like yeah it's just fucking weird and, you know and uh you know it's it has nine songs like our second record has an 80s cover like our second record is just like a kind of um you know 10 years later we're kind of doing a, a trying to do a similar record but it's i wouldn't say it's it's that much like the second record because it's it's super not self-conscious like it was probably the most relaxed i've ever been the songs went through the least amount of editing or just kind of reworking than they ever have so um yeah it was just kind of like, yeah, it's a pretty choice manner thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Like, I feel like this album does, at least to me, feel almost a little spiritually similar to that album. Like, and also like, it's yeah. like, uh, I feel like it's a, almost like not in a bad way, but like a bit of like a hodgepodge, like Secret Sisters, yeah. like you said, it's an old song. And then like NBTSA is also an old song, which mm-hmm. it, you had said in the press materials is actually a different version of Secret Sisters. Isn't that crazy? Is that, it's, well, how it's does just, that work? Like exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, I, mean, so that, I mean, seriously. No, I know. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so I'll tell you. So, <laughs> okay, yeah. so after the second record, I wrote a batch of songs, and this is when I was still doing primarily like all of the writing. So the first two records, I wrote almost everything. The second record chases a couple guitar parts, but he hadn't really come into his own as a guitar player yet. He, he just like leveled up like crazy. I never hung over again. And started writing these like amazing parts that 
just sound like Chase, you know, like they don't sound like anybody else. And he just came into his own as a musician out of nowhere on that record. But the first two records were mostly me. And I, um, I was just so neurotic and would write things and rework them and scrap them and keep part of it and then go back to the old version. And then like, I was just super, Oh, I really overwork things. And um, that's how much I would overwork things. So I wrote Never Be The Same Again. It's about getting abducted by aliens. And for me, it was just kind of like a fun pop punk song. But I was trying to like break through. I was trying to write. I didn't want to just like write a fun pop punk song. So I completely reworked it. I changed the chords. I changed the melody. I changed the lyrics. There's like, I think only really one similarity. I, I rewrote the solo. The only similarity is that in, in Never Be The Same Again, I say, I don't know why I want you to know. And then in Secret Sisters, I say, I want you to know. It was like literally the only thing. And it's like, can I tell you a secret? And then it became, that became, I was like, well, that's a little generic. So it became Secret Sisters. That's a little more cryptic, you know? So mm-hmm. there's, it's so, it's just changed so much that they don't even resemble each other. But there's like little tiny things that stay the same. So that's why I felt good about putting on a record. It's like, oh, there's kind of this thread you can you can follow, and, and maybe I can kind of create this like um, very loose like concept that is. I mean, it's totally imagined, but like if you kind of, you know, conspiracy theorists, like you can see something if you really want to. You know, you can mm-hmm. like oh, and draw parallels, but it's bullshit. There's like there's really nothing except that you know those two songs. Uh, I somehow managed to just completely build it up from the ground to become a completely different song. But that's how I used to work back then. And I, I did that with a, a lot of stuff. So Nice. Um, so you did this album with uh, Rob Schnaff, who you also did Cody with. Uh, and I think that makes this the first time you did a second album with the same producer that you did. Yep. An album. What uh, is so special about your relationship with Rob? Um... I guess Rob is just, he's such a great producer. Like he makes these subtle changes to your songs that make a not so subtle difference in the quality. Like he'll change one little thing that seems, and and it just like the whole thing becomes so much more listenable and um, exciting and holds your interest. And uh, yeah, He's just, the, he's such a great producer. And, um, you know, I should be careful what I say, but like, it was awesome working with Kurt Ballou, but um, I, I, part of me wishes we had done uh, Million Dollars to Kill Me with Rob, just because um, I think we had have a great, we had a great thing going by the end of Cody. And it was just wanting to try something new. And Kurt did a great job on Million Dollars to Kill Me, but, but we had really developed a, a common language with Rob. And so, it was kind of a no-brainer for me to, to go back to Rob because, you know, I just realized that 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 um, where we had gotten, where, where the point we had got to with him at, by the end of Cody um, was was cool and special. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go to another record with Rob in a heartbeat. I think uh, I think he, he made the songs like from the demos to what Rob did to them on this record, it's pretty astounding. The, uh, the amount that they, he improved them. 
I always felt like Rob was kind of a cool fit on Cody because like I feel like you guys had been this like punk emo whatever type band for a while and then it's like sort of this prettier record Mm -hmm. and like he had kind of done that with like saves the day and like the anniversaries like he kind of had this history of like making like emo bands sound a little prettier like later in their career um i mean that's exactly what i went to him like those saves mm -hmm. the day records and i mean he he did a great guy by voices record but i don't think he really they were so established on their own he didn't really kind of bring them to that next level. I mean, mm-hmm. he did the same thing with Elliot. Like, um, yeah, I love, I love the records he did with Elliot, but I also really like the stuff that Elliot did prior to working with Rob, you know, like, and, um, so, but, but yeah, really, I like what he can do for a pop punk band, like saves it. Mm-hmm. Like he can just bring Rob is really knowledgeable musically as far as like, He'll show you like cool Beatles, like, oh, have you ever actually learned this Beatles song? And he'll show you like these cool chords or like zombies stuff. Like, oh man, like, isn't that chord cool? And like, isn't it cool how they they do this little change? And he's actually figured out the voicings and stuff. And it's amazing to like see like, oh man, you just know all that shit. Like, I know how to play like, you know, Dysentery Gary, you know, like, like, I know how to play like, uh, fucking... Island in the Sun or some shit, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm not a super, um, I'm not as chordy, but he can see what I'm doing, like with the chords and the melody and he can just make it a little richer and a little more deep. And like, what if we did like this voicing and sing this note for the harmony and, but the harmony only comes in here and just these really sophisticated things that are really tasteful and they're really, um, yeah, I guess tasteful is a really good way of putting it. You know, like he's not trying to make it a hit or make it more like maximalist. He's like just trying to subtly improve it. And that subtlety is just what makes it. Um, I mean, I, I lack subtlety. You know, my songwriting is blunt. Like I, my, and my, 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 um, I don't have the finesse that he has. Like he's like, okay, well, what if we just take, like what you have is really good. What if we just gently, and then it's like, oh, that's amazing. But you kept what was there intact. I'm like, yeah, this is good. I'm going to smash it completely because it's not great, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, and so, yeah, just someone like that is, is invaluable. You know what I mean? That's really rare to find someone who can like really nurture your, your songs. And, um, and also he's really fun to hang out with. Like he's really fun to drink beers and smoke weed with. So I also was like, that sounds like a great time, especially during the fucking pandemic where we couldn't hang out and party and shit. So, Cause I've been hanging out and partying with Chase and Matt for 10 years. And then this is the first time I haven't been able to do that at all. Like I wanted to take a break from the band stuff, but I didn't want to take a break from fucking hanging out with Matt and Chase. Like I didn't need a break from those guys. Those are my fucking boys. So it was like, Oh, we get to hang out with Matt and Chase and Rob. Like that's a fucking party. Like that's a good time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was just a no brainer. That's awesome. I wonder if he, like did something similar working with saves today. Cause I feel like, like in reverie is such like a chords record. Like it's just oh, like big. Yeah. He totally, he told me, he's like, he's like, yeah, I, I just showed, <laughs> I, I showed Chris, um, uh, what are those called? Um, major sevens, major mm-hmm. and minor sevens. He didn't know what those were before. And he, he should, cause Chris was like fucking 20 when they did, uh, right. They were, which is in fucking insane. Like mm-hmm. I hear a lot of these young bands and I'm like, Oh, you know, they're, they're young. They're still figuring it out. But I'm like, they're fucking 26. I'm like, Chris Conley did fucking stay where you are when he was 20. Like there's no excuse. Anyway. 
um, Rob just showed him major and minor sevens. And then he came back and, and had in reverie, like completely written with these like super fucking crazy, beautiful, like jazzy almost chords. Yeah. It's just, that's Rob just kind of gave him that. And he's like on your way. And then he just mm-hmm. came back with in reverie, which I fucking love in reverie. Yeah, no, it's, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've also been kind of hopping between drummers lately and you did this one with Always. Tony. <laughs> yeah. Right. For a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you did this one with Tony for motion city soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, how did you link up with him and what do you feel like he brought that was new for Joyce Manor? Oh shit. So our, um, our drummer, Pat, uh, decided to go to law school, which is awesome. And Pat, Pat ruled, but he, he was in Philly, which was just logistically kind of difficult. And, um, yeah, it was amazing playing with Pat and getting to know Pat. Like I love Pat and he's a wonderful person, but, um, during the pandemic, it presented a problem cause he couldn't just come to LA. So, um, we were like, yeah, well, he's going to go to law school and, Let's just get a session drummer. We never had done a session drummer. And my, my first thought was Josh Freese. I was like, oh, Josh is incredible. He lives in Long Beach. Like, he's not doing shit because it's a fucking pandemic. So he's not on tour with fucking Nine Inch Nails or some shit. So, and I asked Brett from Epitaph, I was like, yo, should, should we um, ask Josh Freese to play drums on this? And he's like, yo, Josh is great, but there's a lot of people who are great. And he's like, who I think would be a really great fit is this guy, Tony Thaxton. And I, I'm familiar with Motion City Soundtrack. I only got into him in the last few years, but I heard them and I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome. Like, I kind of assumed it wouldn't be my cup of tea, but I actually heard it and I was like, oh, these hooks are like unreal. And and you could tell those dudes aren't into like pop punk. They're into, you know, more sophisticated music. They're like Minneapolis dudes that are into, I don't know what the fuck they're into, like, they're into something. They're, you know what I mean? They're not just listening to pop-up. Those guys sure. are very musical. And um, especially love the drumming. Like, I thought the drumming was extremely inventive. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be amazing. And Brett thought he'd be a good fit. And I really trust Brett. I trust Brett's um, judgment and, and taste. He's, he's really, really a great asset. So I was like, yeah, I mean, ask him if he'd be into it. And then he was. We had band practice. He, I showed, showed him the songs. I was like, fuck, is, what is he going to play over this shit? And first take, knew exactly what to play. It was like, no, there's nothing to him. And played the perfect part on everything pretty much immediately. And, you know, I was like, I was like how, how do you do that? He's like, I just don't think about it. He's like, if I think about it, I'll come up with something lame. So I just, I just start moving my arms and whatever happens, happens. And he does all kinds of fucking Motion City soundtrack stuff on that with a little like kind of quick Tom stuff and just one hit on the bell, you know, like, um, but yeah, the parts are super appropriate and super musical and make the songs more catchy. And, uh, watching him get drum takes was just fucking amazing. Like he's so fucking good at drums and his, just his precision and his like consistency and velocity. And we recorded the drums at sunset sound. So just, Watching a drummer that could record in Sunset Town, that was like one of my favorite moments of uh, my career in the band or my recording career or whatever. It was just like, holy shit, man. We got Rob Schnaff, Tony Thaxton. What is it, my fucking birthday? Like this, you know what I mean? Like what, what am I like make a wish foundation kid? You know what I mean? Like this is too good to be true. So yeah, it was great. Yeah. I mean, that literally sounds like a dream come true. 
Yeah, it really is. It's just like, it's, it seems like not fair, but, um, I'm not complaining. I'm stoked. Mm -hmm. Um, now, so a couple of song specific questions about the new record. Um, so you're not famous anymore. Is that about a specific child star or is it uh, (laughs) just kind of like a fictional thing or, I, I mean, I got a couple people in mind. Uh, I probably shouldn't say who because it might end up in a fist fight. Um, it might be cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a band in mind. Um, and, you know, I, I actually, you know what? I didn't. I didn't have a band in mind. I just was playing G major to C minor. But as soon as I kind of like realized like, what I was writing about, I knew who I was writing about. Mm-hmm. But um, I never like sit down to be like, hey, this would be a cool idea for a song. I'm going to write about that. I, I just like either I'm like driving along and a kind of song pops in my head and it either has like scratch lyrics and usually with my better songs, the scratch lyrics end up being good and I use them, but I kind of hear a song, hear a melody just kind of when I'm cruising along or walking down the street or it used to be when I was at work a lot. Like when I was waiting tables at, at Mimi's cafe, like I wrote a bunch of, Joyce Manor songs. Um, and I'd be in the back, like it was before I'd like recall myself and leave a voicemail of like the, I'm like, you know, I'm singing fucking, I don't know, orange Julius, like into my phone, you know, like in the walk-in freezer, you know, you can hear like the fucking motor of the freezer in the background. So anyway, um, when that's happening, I'm not like, so yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, I have someone in mind, but I didn't like sit down and like, I'm going to write a fucking diss track for this right. fucking idiot. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like about the nature of like, we would kind of like to see people uh, fall from grace and we like to see people who were once up here kind of be down here, especially, you know, it's kind of a petty, um, uh, not very nice song, but uh, it's cool. I like it. It's kind of funny. It had, it had a lyric we took out. Like it initially had the lyric, um, you got a real bad pitchfork score. Now you're not famous anymore, but, Nice. It was a little like uh, I don't want to sing about pitchfork. You know? Right, right. I get it. Um, so, would you say that in general you're like more of a melodies first, lyrics second writer, or does it just kind of change depending on the song? Or yeah, usually it's melodies first, and then like there'll be some scratch lyrics that kind of go with it. But it's mm-hmm. yeah, usually the the inspiration or when when kind of inspiration strikes, or I feel like oh, a song is happening. It's because of a. Um, a melody yeah and then i kind of try to uh hopefully there's a, at least like a few lines in there that i can build off of and then it's just about like well where's that going what do i want to say and then you know and sometimes it's a matter of trying not to rhyme too much and actually say what i what what the, what's suggested by the line that was inspired because a lot of times like when it's inspired like the melody and lyrics will kind of feel like each other you know, like the, like an like example, like don't try like that melody and that chord progression, like it feels like those lyrics, you know, it has like a, mm-hmm. a sense of a kind of longing or like frustration. And uh, yeah, that's when it's good when, when they, the melody feels like the lyrics. And so they just, they sound married in a, in a cool way, but um, yeah, never lyrics first. I've never like written a lyric, like a, I'm going to write a little poem like right, right. without my feelings, like never, ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, well, another Lyra question uh, sure. on dance with me. And you have that line. Uh, if you're like a frightened rabbit, 
Is that a nod towards the band at all or a coincidence or? I think subconsciously I was familiar. Mm -hmm. I was familiar with that um, tragedy that a really heartbreaking situation there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a dude in a band that's had some kind of low points, you know, like, yeah, it it struck me. And so I think that, that was probably the most inspired song on the record. I think I wrote that in about five minutes. I think I went to the garage and was like smoked a joint and just was, uh, playing guitar in there and uh i came back in and showed it to my girlfriend and she was like how the fuck did you do that like you, you just came up with that i was like yeah is it good and she's like it's fucking really good but it's she's like you just wrote that like you just came up with that i was like yeah like both verses just now you know and like uh yeah it was just i was just inspired and it was kind of towards the end of, of writing the record so i was really in practice with like using the creative side of my brain that it was takes a while to get that kind of going again. So I was, I was in prime condition and uh, yeah, I just kind of, that one I wrote really quick. She hated the chorus at first. She was like, you've got to write better lyrics for the fucking chorus. But I really like that it, the chorus is so simple and just like, if life is just absolutely so fucking awful and shitty and like, you can't fucking bear it. And you're trapped in your own psychological hell. Like all you can do is fucking mosh, you know, like, you know, that, that's what it means to me. It's just like, Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't really fucking go crazy at shows anymore, but as a kid, that was like my favorite thing to do. Like I was a, I was in the fucking crowd kid. Cause I, I had a, you know, some, uh, you know, my my early life was psychological torment, you know, like, and so, uh, so pitting was just awesome, you know, like just, yeah, just, she, yeah, she's like, you don't even like dancing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't fucking dance, but like, I love to kind of, you know, the cathartic movement to music is just awesome. And for, and especially I think for people with, uh, some problems mm-hmm. and yeah, I feel like that song is really succinct and, um, I really mean it and it's really true from from my perspective i also feel like it's kind of fascinating on a lyrical level because like you have these kind of like lines that feel like they're these playful metaphors but then like a really direct line like we're on a burning planet yeah um and it's like to hear those things kind of juxtaposed yeah Yeah, it's too real yeah yeah but a planet Um, there is magic you know like that's i was like man that's just so yeah, some of my favorite lyrics I've ever written. And I think maybe a lot of people aren't going to like that song because it also kind of sounds like it was written by the fucking Teletubbies. You know, like, <laughs> but but I, I, I'm really proud of that one. And I love, I love Chase's guitar line. Like, it kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of, like, um, the Cars or something. Like, uh, my best friend's girl has this kind of similar, like, syncopated kind of, almost like chicken picking kind of thing. And I think... Chase's Chase's guitar line. When we first, when I first showed him that song, and, and he, he came up with, or he kind of had that, but he kind of reworked it to that syncopation over the chorus. I was like, "Fuck, that is so good!" Like he he really elevated that one. And then Rob just did a really great job with the subtle little things that, that he did to that song. Just yeah, I think that was a, good, a great team effort, and we really brought that one across the finish line. Personally, mm-hmm. it's interesting that the chorus was almost maybe a little more like mosh inspired because it gave me like, like kind of like a fifties, like bubble gum, like rock and roll. Like, do you want to dance with me? Kind of, you know, like, um, but even, yeah. But even that was like, Harvest Moon, Neil Young, like, um, 
like yeah it has a kind of i i definitely i get what you mean it, it has like a like a dance with me yeah it doesn't sound yeah. like fucking yeah mosh with me but in my head it was like right that's the only dancing i've ever done in my life i don't fucking dance dude like i'm not mm-hmm. you know i'm not out there cutting up a rug like so, right um yeah i don't know uh it's also um really really i realized later it's pretty much almost 100 percent lifted from a hepcat song ska band hepcat they have a they have a song called dance dance with me and the mm-hmm. chorus is like really similar but hopefully different enough and hopefully those guys are cool and don't sue me <laughs> um well on that note uh i a hepcat i mean i think is probably a band that not every Joyce Manor fan would think you're influenced by or even know. Um, But I mean, you've also on this record and the previous, you have some songs written with Rory Phillips from the impossibles who are also a ska band. Uh, And I was recently listening to your episode on the indefensive ska podcast. So we know you're a ska supporter. Um, What would you uh, like? I know you had talked a bit a bit, a little bit about how like, you've kind of been as a songwriter, you take notes from Scott, like the kind of like melodic counterpoint and stuff from Sky's influence, Joyce Manor songs. Um, if you were talking to a, a Joyce Manor fan who was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to know anything about Sky. Like it's not, you know, I mean, you know how it is. Like totally. what, where, where would you, where would you bring up some examples of like, I can pinpoint like, here's a Joyce Manor song where you can really hear it. Um, and also just in general, like how would you kind of sell the genre to someone who is like afraid to listen to it or thinks it sucks. I would say like, Hey, do you like, um, girls just want to have fun by Cindy Lauper? And they'd say, yeah, duh. I'm like, you like Scott. That's a fucking great Scott song. Um, just, I guess shit like that. Like, or like, I think, um, English beat is kind of not totally a Scott band. Like there's a lot going on there. Um, but you know, that's it's fucking amazing songwriting and really sophisticated, but, you know, a lot of a lot of ska is fucking terrible. You know, and and if you weren't there, like I was there, like for a lot of that third wave stuff, and like I went to some mm-hmm. great third wave ska shows. But yeah, it's it's wacky, it's dork, it's kind of dorky, you know. But um, just the amount of fun that uh, was taking place at, at those shows, like it was so fun and so uninhibited and so unpretentious, and uh, it was just like. Uh, I feel sorry for anyone who never had to experience that because it was just some of the best shows I ever went to, you know? And, um, people say that about like fishbone and stuff. Like I never got super into fishbone. I think they're cool, but they're like Prince said they're the best live band he's ever seen. Fucking Prince, you know? So, um, there's a lot of merit to that music and it's, it's fun to stick up for because it's pretty much universally discredited and despised, you know? So it's like, it, it kind of needs someone to come to its aid because there's a lot of really great songwriting. Like some of my favorite Scott, like third wave Scott bands, cause everyone like kind of respects two tone mm-hmm. and anybody with a fucking brain knows that the early Jamaican shit is like some of the best music ever. So like, yeah. that stuff doesn't need defending for sure. But, but the third wave shit, like some of the better third wave bands I would say would be slow gherkin, which it's the name is going to turn a lot of people off, you know, like it's like a pickle, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's very it sounds goofy, but there's some really great songwriting on um, the Slow Gurken record, like Shed Some Skin, especially. And then uh, I would say The Siren Six are a great 
ska band, kind of more like mod. They have kind of a mod influence, maybe like a Elvis Costello and the Attractions kind of thing. And then I would say maybe Amy 330 and Mighty Mighty Boston's have some like, you know, really great songwriting with some poignant lyrics. And um, it's, it's not that corny. It's not that goofy. It's not that, you know, it's not that uh, cringy. But if you wanted me to name fucking corny ass cringy ska bands, we could be here all night. You know what I mean? Like I can, I could go, I could go head to head with anybody. But um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I also kind of feel like, I feel like it's just like any style of music that gets maligned in like, uh, you know, the mainstream media is like everybody just kind of focuses on like a couple of the bands that got really big like had a bad reputation i mean even like with pop punk right like it's like totally or like emo like if you're looking at like the biggest emo bands in the world of 2005 i get why people were like the whole genre is bad you know (laughs) like that's gonna be like lowest common denominator you know and um i mean also like this always happens it's and it and ska's kind of having a moment and it's because it was so maligned it's like i remember when like new metal was a dirty word and like now i can't go fucking five seconds without hearing a band it sounds like the death tones mm-hmm. you know it's just like people like to well actually you think it's fucking lame but it's really very very cool mm-hmm. and so ska's kind of having that moment new metal's definitely having that moment right now mm-hmm. and that kind of makes me want to try and be like i mean yeah but guys like fucking limp biscuit like come on like this is fucking horrible. You know what I mean? This is like, like it's horrible fucking, I, I get it. Like there's some, something, you know, to, to be some joy to be derived there. But like, I don't know, man. Um, I lived through it already. I already lived through the deaf tones. I remember like I was in high school when they were fucking popular and deaf tones. I mean, I kind of get what people like it. It's not my cup of tea, but I know I didn't fuck with new metal then. I don't fuck with it now, but um, mm-hmm. Limp Bizkit, man, it's, that's fucking horrible, man. I definitely feel like Deftones are kind of like the the one you're allowed to like, even yeah. even before like the sure. you know like. Be like, did you know they were actually really into shoegaze? I'm like, right, exactly. I, yeah, I, I don't mean, give a fuck. You know, what I mean? like, yeah. So, right, that's me. Uh, um, now, uh, like you said, Ska's kind of having like a moment right now. Um, you think Joyce Manor would ever like take a Ska in on tour? Nah, because no. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I really love the moment that Scott's having. It's kind of mm-hmm. like this semi-ironic um, Twitter shit, like fucking Eve Six guy and all that shit. I'm just like, it's a little. It all has it seems a little icky to me. And um, I, I fucking love Scott. But I love it in a very genuine way, where I don't. I don't need this to be, to be like a bit. You know, it's not. I don't, it's not a bit. Like I, I've fucking went to some amazing shows and fucking skanked my ass off. And it wasn't at all ironic. And I know not not every band like you know, Cat Bite. They they know their shit and they they're just doing it. You know, like they're just doing it. But I think all those fools need to get the fuck off Twitter and quit fucking flying the flag on. It just it just it's a little poisoned and a little icky to me. So I'm not getting involved with any of that shit. Like my love of Sky is real and predates social media. And um, I it doesn't make any sense for Joyce Manor to be out with Scott Band. Like, uh, but you know, you see really cool flyers from the nineties of like 
June of 44 or like some like a Christy front drive playing with like mustard plug or some shit, you know, like you see mm. these crazy mixed bills with like coalesce on it for some reason too. Like, right. So you'd see these trippy bills and stuff, but I rather just, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm like, I'm good on the, uh, but uh, that being said, like I did an interview for that in defense of Scott podcast. I'm, I'm happy to talk about Scott and stuff, but, and I, I love Aaron and, uh, why am I fucking blanking on his name? Adam. Uh, Adam from the Gaty. Yeah. Um, I love those dudes, but like, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't think I need to lean. We're not going to do his fucking Scott version of our record anytime. Right. Soon. Right. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so kind of also Scott related. Let's talk about the album title. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. so it's, uh, Damn. right. So <laughs> the story is that it comes from an autocorrected text about the first sublime album. Yep. Um, so at what point did it go from funny inside joke to like, okay, we're actually going to name our album this? Um, I always struggle to come up with a title and I always go through a few working titles and a few covers where I'm like, yeah, this is the cover. And then three weeks later, I'm like, no, no, no. It's, I, I got something better. I got something better. So I'm always looking, trying to find that just the right cover and the right title and the right title that goes with the cover. And, um, yeah, I went through a bunch of different covers and a bunch of different titles. Record was originally called um, Show Up and Starve, which I thought was a great title. And um, went through a few different covers. Um, the record was going to be called Hung Over Again. There's a picture of me eating a burrito on the cover, looking like complete shit, hung over as hell. And I was like, yeah, I'll call it Hung Over Again. But that kind of started to feed into this like lore. This like never hung over again. Lore. I create this kind of, and I was like, that's a bit much you know um and so i uh was texting my friend about sublime i was was listening to 40 ounces of freedom for the first time about seven years seven or eight years and it was blowing me away i couldn't believe how many good songs were on it that i'd forgotten about i was like oh fuck man yeah this one like oh god like this song is so good and so i texted a friend of mine i was like when was the last time you listened to 40 ounces to freedom but it autocorrected to fresno and i was like 40 ounces of Fresno. I just, I like the ring of it. It sounded like very Joyce Manor to me. It's kind of bleak. It's alcoholic, misanthropic, you know, like I love Fresno. I have a lot of love for Fresno, but it's kind of a bleak place, you know, like there's, there's a lot of uh, bleak shit there. Uh, so yeah, it just, it just worked for me. And then uh, it went really well with the cover. So I think the cover looks super ominous and yeah, you know, like I've lived in Long Beach for, since 2007 for so 15 years, you know, so Long Beach is a big part of uh, my identity and who I am. I, I wrote all these songs in Long Beach. So a little, little subtle nod to Sublime, who I think are a fucking great band, you know, completely no sense of irony at all saying that. Um, and uh, yeah. Nice. And, and it's cool to shout out Fresno too. I love Fresno. We've had great shows there. So yeah, it's just, I just like the title that it worked. Yeah, it's definitely got a ring to it. Yeah. Um, so that's like basically everything I prepared. Uh, is there anything you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked about or anything you want to shout out? No. Nah, um, yeah. Thanks for taking time to talk to me. I, uh, I hope people like the record and we worked really hard on it. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. All right. Well, that just about does it for the first ever episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Barry. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com where we're constantly posting music news, album reviews, live coverage, and more. See you next time.